Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Welcome to episode 38. Today's guest is Dr. Beth Singler, who is the junior research fellow in artificial intelligence at Homerton College, University of Cambridge. Prior to this, she was the postdoctoral research associate on the Human Identity in an Age of Nearly Human Machines project at the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion. She has been an associate fellow at the Leverhulme Center for the Future of Intelligence, which is in Cambridge, and associated with the Center for the Study of Existential Risk. She's been there since 2016. And you may recall that Dr. Corinna Vold from episodes 14 and 15 was also there until recently. Beth explores the social, ethical, philosophical, and religious implications of advances in artificial intelligence and robotics. She has produced a series of short documentaries. The first, Pain in the Machine, won the 2017 Best Research Film of the Year Award from the Arts and Humanities Research Council. You can find Pain in the Machine and its sequels, Friend in the Machine, Good in the Machine, and Ghost in the Machine on YouTube and linked from Beth's page at bvlsingler.com and in the show notes and transcript. Each is under a quarter of an hour long and with very high production values. I was in Cambridge for the premiere of Ghost in the Machine, and it includes an amazing dramatization of how interaction with a prototype artificial general intelligence might go. And it's rendered in a simulation as a young girl kept in a secure facility while the researchers try to determine, in a reenactment of the AI boxing scenario, whether it's conscious, whether it has emotions, and whether it's dangerous. It gets into ex machina territory only with commentary and discussion from experts, including Corinna. It can be disturbing at times, but it's supposed to be, because the questions it provokes are ones we may find hard to face. Here we go with the first part of the interview with Beth Singler. Beth, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. So you have quite the eclectic niche in artificial intelligence. It says you're a researcher in artificial intelligence. What department are you associated with, if any, is it anthropology, sociology, computer science, philosophy? Yeah, I'm an interesting beast, I suppose. And probably when the current position that I have was advertised, maybe they were thinking they'd get themselves a computer scientist or at least a philosopher. But uh, they've ended up with an anthropologist who's looked at contemporary religious movements in a lot of her career. So I bring some of that thinking with me to my understanding of how people tell stories about AI and what they think AI is and what kind of groups and communities form around those ideas. But I'm by no means a computer scientist or a technologist. So I always caveat a lot of my talks with I, I, I'm not trying to create AI. I'm trying to understand what we think it is. How would you describe yourself in one word? <laughs> oh, geek is a good word. I like geek <laughs> and storyteller. Yes. Before I came back to academia and did my master's and my PhD, I was a struggling, not very successful screenwriter. So I bring some of that storytelling with me into my work. And I'm really 
interested in doing public engagement work to help people understand what's actually happening with AI and what parts are the kind of fictional elements that they can enjoy in science fiction, but be a bit more skeptical about when it's presented as science fact. That's hinting at a mission there. What is it that's driving you? What difference are you looking to make in the world? I'm really interested as an anthropologist in people's utopian hopes and their dystopic fears. And I suppose as an anthropologist, I recognize the impact of both of those, but want to also address where the interesting muddling middle ground is. And for a lot of people, artificial intelligence is something that provokes these very extreme reactions. But I'd like to see a little bit more education for the general public about what is possible with artificial intelligence and what is the sort of the science fiction side of things. So I suppose if that's a mission, I suppose that's as close as I get to it. For a long time, I think my mission was to understand what people think of when they talk about AI. And then if perhaps that's leading them in directions that are personally harmful to them, then, then we need to think about that in terms of the ethics of applications of AI as well. Why has this engagement, this fascination of the public with AI exploded lately? Well, it's I think it's an iterative relationship between the press and media's representation of artificial intelligence, which obviously draws on a lot of science fiction tropes and imagery. It's very rare you get a you get an article in the, at least in the UK press without some sort of image of the Terminator on it, and that feeds into people's expectations, their hopes, their fears, their dreams and nightmares about AI. I think also, I mean, there's a whole policy shift around the world, but I, I, I'm looking, you know, with my location in the UK context into seeing that this is definitely the direction in which the technology is going and we should be pushing as fast forward with this as possible, sort of an AI accelerationism, I suppose. And that's definitely there in the discussions of policy in the UK and probably likely in other countries as well. So there's a there's an overall increase in the conversation when the benefits of particular applications of AI become apparent, then some of the speculations on what it can do can grow as well. Have we been here before in history with this level of fascination and obsession with AI? Was it different? Well, a lot of times people indicate towards the story, the narrative of the AI winter and the AI summer and say, you know, we've had these booms and busts of hype cycles before when it comes to artificial intelligence. What might be slightly different now, and I don't know if this will hold out or not, is the role of the charismatic entrepreneur or the charismatic authority from a specific corporation that's really investing heavily in artificial intelligence. I mean, when specific applications fail to bear fruit in terms of commercial results, you'll see those dropping off. I think we're seeing something along those lines with automated vehicles. But when that kind of level of personal aspiration is involved with certain voices in the conversation, that may well drive AI from the AI summer into yet another AI summer and another one. So we won't necessarily see that kind of shift and flow Perhaps when the previous AI winter was a big concern, it was because there was a limitation in state and governmental funding. And I say this shift more to entrepreneurial funding makes a difference, I think. I feel the ghost of Elon Musk hovering over the last paragraph. Uh, did he, you have? He shall not be named. Yeah. Yes. Touch of that. <laughs> um, you've created some compelling video stories about artificial intelligence. And I'd like you to describe those to whet the appetite of anyone who hasn't seen them so that they'll go out and look at them and describe your role in those and how they came about. Yeah, so at the beginning of my last postdoc position, when I was getting into the subject of AI and not fully myself feeling like I had a grip on the conversation and the debate, 
I worked with a team of filmmakers and actually someone from the Department of Pharmacology here at the University of Cambridge to create one short documentary called Pain in the Machine, where I wanted to ask the kind of the provocative question, could and should a robot feel pain? And then use expert voices within that, as well as some narrative storytelling elements to kind of open up that question to a public audience. And then after that, we then continued on and made three more films, keeping the title structure of In the Machine. So there's Friend in the Machine, which is about questions of companionship and whether robots could ever be good friends. The third is Good in the Machine, about the ethics of applications of AI and also the larger questions of making AI itself ethical in its behaviours. And then the final one, which I like to joke, you know, we tackled the big question of consciousness in 15 minutes, like it's that easy. But Ghost in the Machine was my attempt into getting into that conversation with some really interesting, profound philosophers, um, bringing those important questions about where AI is going, where we think it's going, where it could end up and whether it matters that for some people the goal is consciousness. Mm. And they're quite thought-provoking. And the storytelling with the acting in there in particular, it's not a documentary feel, it's Mm. dramatization. They're stories. Mm. What was the reaction of the actors to the story? Did they feel like this was a novel Mm. kind of thing to portray? so I think what was particularly interesting if you watch them the third one when we started working with child actors as well in particular so we did a a storytelling version of the parable of the sparrows from Nick Bostrom's book Superintelligence which is all about expectations of AI's arrival but told through the fable form with sparrows and owl legs and we had children putting that on as a school play basically but then you know, kind of the meta story is that this is actually a training scenario for an AI. So we're playing around with some of the classical science fiction tropes when it comes to artificial intelligence. And yeah, talking to the child actors, I think they were really engaged with this idea of what it means to try and develop something that could potentially be more powerful. So following along from Bostrom's argument in superintelligence, that this is this is one direction in which things could go. And I think it also the story elements gave us an opportunity, as I say, to play with some of these familiar science fiction tropes, sometimes maybe play on them as well. So we made sure that we in particular had female actors for the roles of the AI scientists, because the stereotype view is obviously the the male genius creator who develops AI in a secret lab somewhere and it wakes up and comes to consciousness. So we wanted to play with some of those expectations as well. You mentioned children there. Do you find in your interactions with people who are on the outside of AI, if you will, mm. not, not at all familiar with the technology, but they have some idea that it's an impact to their life. Do you find a differentiation between children and adults in their attitudes? Um, It's interesting. I've done some schools talks and one of them in particular, they surprised me by saying, well, come along and talk to 17, 18 year olds who are doing philosophy and computer science. And then while I was actually there, they said, actually, do you mind popping over to the junior school and talking to our sort of eight year olds who've been doing English creative writing projects on robots? And of course, I was I was very nervous because I hadn't prepared anything. But all I had to do was ask them two questions. And for the rest of the 40 minutes, they spoke. I, I didn't even have to say anything else. It was fine. And the two questions I asked were, what robots do you know? And what should robots be able to do? And they knew all the science fiction robots, probably from films they were too young to have watched, but that's up to their parents. And uh, they had very distinct ideas about what robots should be able to do, primarily to do for them. So things like clean my bedroom, scrub the toilets, I liked follow me around and give me money. 
which I think is probably the role of most parents at the moment. But uh, <laughs> that was another one. And I think there are some parallels there. If you when you do public engagement talks to adults, there are similar sort of positions on what robots can do for us, what embodied AI in some form can do for us. I think there's more concern perhaps coming from adult voices. They start talking about the ethical implications. They have more obviously self-selecting audiences that come to public engagement talks. They likely have an interest, have thought somewhat about what AI could mean in the future. So you do get those more cautious voices. I think the children I spoke to are more enthusiastic, specifically, you know, AI robots that can clean their bedrooms for them. They're very, very keen on those. Yes, and I think the parents would agree. I also would like something to clean your bedroom. Absolutely. I've experienced similar reactions and also that for them in speaking to middle schoolers, same age Mm -hmm. as what you were talking about, that AI is part of their environment already. Mm-hmm. They speak about it as something that's already here. Yeah. Like computers are always been part of their environment, and for mm-hmm. some of us it wasn't, but now for them AI is already part of their environment. Mm-hmm. Going back to the pain in the machine, would it be giving away too much mm-hmm. to ask whether that question was answered, whether they should feel yeah. pain? Um, No, I think what we were really intending with the films was to open up the conversation to a general audience. We didn't feel particularly that we had the definitive answer. We wanted to involve voices who felt that they perhaps had definitive answers. So there are some, you know, Mm -hmm. straight down the lines, yeses and noes from some of the people we interviewed. But on the whole, we wanted some form of balance, but with the information so the audience could perhaps make up their own minds. So one of the things we did also as a part of releasing the films online was to attach surveys to them. So I have, I mean, not massive sample size surveys, but a few people who self-selected again into answering questions about the films and whether the the films themselves had an impact on their thinking around the subject, whether they had changed their minds in particular ways, and also questions about whether they were concerned about the future of AI as well. And that varied, I think, along the course of the films. From the first film, there was less concern, but by the time the, the last film, I think some of the, the responses and the questions around consciousness in particular, there were more concerns, perhaps because, as I say, the science fiction that we ingest so often has this idea of the destructive conscious AI that's turned on and decides to destroy all humans. So I think that is certainly an element in people's understanding of what AI is capable of. Your series seems to me to evoke some of the fundamental dichotomies that we've not resolved about the role of artificial intelligence. Hmm. That, for instance, its ability to feel pain reminds me of one of the early questions I got in talking to groups where someone said, if AI has not suffered, how can it have empathy Mm -hmm. for us? And I think that's behind a lot of the ethical dilemmas about things like the trolley problem, Mm. is that we don't have an answer to the trolley problem, but we know that a human trying to solve it will suffer trying to come up with the answer. If they don't feel some level of anguish Mm. about that question, they're not really human. Mm. And I think that a lot of the difficulty we have in the ethics of artificial intelligence is rooted in the idea that we assume it doesn't feel pain or compassion or empathy. Mm. But then the conversation doesn't seem to go as far as, well, then should we allow that to happen? Because then, well, now we really are talking about playing God if we're talking about creating something that can feel and then ensuring that it feels pain. And it looks like you're going there, not playing God, but you're asking that question. Is that accurate? How far have you gone down that road? 
on the question of instilling empathy and compassion through suffering, I think it's it's more that I'm interested in our public responses to that. I mean, I, I don't necessarily consider myself to be a philosophical ethicist who's going to come up with a solution to that question. I'm more interested in why we keep asking that question. I think it's really interesting to question why it is, to kind of paraphrase, why do humans dream of electric slaves? In the sense of if we do keep imagining versions of entities that we create, but we don't enable to have all the full levels of existence and experience that we have, why do we think that's preferable? And then conversely, why also do we imagine scenarios where we can create something that is parallel to our human experience? Why why do we continue to sort of feel alone in the universe and want to create replications of ourselves or literally as in Blade Runner, replicants? I think it's significant going back to Blade Runner as well that it focuses down on this unquantifiable concept of empathy as the indicator of humanness and personhood. So the Voigtkamp test specifically for empathy is about what defines you as being a human or not human. And then then the endless conversation about whether Descartes was a a replicant or not kind of does that at a meta level. We're constantly asking is, is the main protagonist in which we are partaking the story is their story that of personhood or not personhood we're doing the same sort of thing so i think it's a it's a continuing conversation that humanity has had for a very long time it's now focused in on the idea of synthetic beings but we've had this conversation historically and culturally in many different contexts when we've encountered those that are considered to be other minds and we've decided whether or not be they non-human other animals or non-human other persons that we haven't qualified completely as persons until much, much later on in our interactions with them. Why do we continue to have these conversations again and again and then daydream about a future where we have that ability in AI as well? I think that's the interesting question. There's a lot to unpack there. In Blade Runner, it's interesting that it could portray this society where the dividing line between humans and androids pivoted on this question of empathy, Mm. but each was so close to that line in terms of the humans lacking it and Mm. the androids faking it that you needed a special machine to tell the difference. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's so much more prevalent in the book than the film. The film obviously suffers from Hollywood production and, and what happens to stories when that happens. But in the book, the the whole conversation about our relationship with animals in particular is, is so much richer. And we can be having those conversations about wider varieties of non-human others. It's AI at the moment has perhaps caught our attention. But we shouldn't be ahistorical and ignore the fact that these conversations have happened many times before. Mm. And throw in aliens as well, you know, as a futuristic concept that we're still considering what would it be like to encounter alien entities. It's, it's a similar conversation. Right. Although in that case, there was definitely the sense that we could outsmart it, that there is encounters with alien races in fiction generally is one where we outsmart them in some way. Uh, or they are dumb enough to be outsmarted by microbes, for instance. The Martians <laughs> arrived and uh, forgot to put on the PPE. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, of course, War of the Worlds, coming out of H.G. Wells's work, is is very much a product of its time. But, you know, we can kind of bring it up to date to some of our interpretations of alien beings as being 
sort of almost transcendental entities in some way in their superior knowledge and understanding. And even, even kind of the Star Trek future gives you a variety along a spectrum of intelligences that we're still encountering entities that are far beyond our understanding. And that's, yeah, that, that parallels to my mind some of the conversations about a speculative AI coming in the future that would be more intelligent than us. And some people conflate those, obviously, in some of the simulation theories that actually all of this is the product of an alien mind simulating some sort of form of existence for us. And that would have to be some form of an artificial intelligence to have existed for so long and to be able to create the universe in such a way, which again, you know, my interest in religious studies as well, that replicates a lot of our uh, soteriological, eschatological talk from various different religious traditions. It's interesting to look at the simulation argument from the outside and, and say, well, we were talking about artificial intelligence and someone dragged this science fictional idea in here and, and, and how does it belong? And yet mm. it shows up so much, it's now assumed to be part of the landscape of that discussion. Yeah. I agree with you that it's too early to try and provide definitive answers to these questions about uh, ethics and morality and suffering in AI that would cut off the investigation who would you like to involve in asking those questions that hasn't been engaged yet? Mm. Well, I mean, there's a very large conversation going on uh, specifically at the moment, actually, around who gets to be considered an ethics expert when it comes to AI, who's involved with the conversation, who's involved with the conversation amongst the corporations who are developing the strongest and largest examples of AI applications, and who's being pushed out of that conversation. When it comes to ethics boards, some people are accusing corporations of doing this as a form of ethics washing, and therefore it's more a performance than actual conversations with the stakeholders who need to be engaged in this conversation. I think some of the work I've done in public engagement has been really illuminating for how little the general public is being involved in the conversation. That yeah, the some of the talks I do, people self-select in and are therefore quite knowledgeable about AI. But on the whole, the public discourse is still being curtailed by the presentations in the press and the media. And even our prime minister here in the UK gave a speech warning about, well, he said pink-eyed terminators, but everyone knows they're really red-eyed. But uh, his concerns mapping onto the same sort of popular discourse that we keep seeing. And I think it's really important that we engage with audiences and stakeholders who are not generally involved, who aren't being given these levels of digital literacy, that our education system goes beyond that early stage of writing creative stories about robots and actually continues the ethical conversation much beyond that, especially when people are then later going into computer sciences without that philosophical ethical grounding. So that's a much larger education problem that we have certainly here in the UK, but I imagine elsewhere as well. Definitely. And oh, by the way, Stuart Russell at Berkeley used to make a condition of his interviews that they not run a picture of the Terminator next to him mm. in the interview and yeah. it never worked. <laughs> they would yeah. say, I'll take that to my boss. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've spoken to journalists about this and so often it's, it's obviously not their fault. It's decisions made higher up or by sub-editors or whoever, but one of the things someone said to me is that it's hard to illustrate stories about AI because robots are so static as an entity. And I thought that was oxymoronic. Like, you know, robots that actually exist can do so much already in terms of movement and having kind of a vitality or assumed vitality to them through our anthropomorphism that we don't need to just go to the shortcut of the Terminator. But of course, you know, 
clicks make right. money, eyes on stories make money. So this is this is the trend, and we can push back against it. I mean, to, to caveat that, uh, the Terminator is a quick shorthand in a lot of the press and media. But actually, the Terminator stories themselves, there's a lot to unpack there about how they replicate the cultural context in which they were made. I've just had a book chapter accepted on specifically the Terminator series and the franchise and actually some of the shading and nuance in there, that they are big blockbusters, but there are interesting things in the stories as well that obviously doesn't translate directly when you just use a Terminator picture in an article. They appear rooted in the Cold War, for Mm -hmm. one thing. Yes, I think, I mean, there's certainly an argument with the second film, primarily on representations of the police and police brutality as well in the 90s. Yeah, there's there's all sorts of elements. The most recent one, Dark Fates, dealt with the future of work and automation, immigration, the effect of surveillance culture, the transition of the main character being John... Con- Sorry, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I don't know if your audience is familiar with all the Terminator films, but some of the shifts and change in gender dynamics as well are very interesting. Right. Now, you've been talking about carrying the message of artificial intelligence, what it really is, and a dialogue to people who are not familiar with it. What about going in the other direction? What do the people who are creating it need to hear? And have you done any work in Mm. feeding that back? Yeah, I mean, I've I've given talks. I've signed a few NDAs, so I can't say always specifically, but I've given a few talks at larger corporations who are working on AI products and processes specifically around the impact of dystopic and utopian AI narratives and what impact that has on public perceptions of what the work is that they're doing, as well as talking about some of the ethical concerns in terms of implementation of specific AI products. I can't possibly know quite how much they've listened to me or they listen to other people. I mean, again, going back to the question of ethics washing, it's sometimes seen in some of those conversations that ethics is a nice add-on. So at some tech festivals I've spoken at, sort of the ethics stage has been more off to one side and the more kind of entrepreneurial product focused conversation has been had at the main stage. And then sometimes when I've wandered around the stalls where people are showing off their products and I ask them specific questions about applications of their technology, they don't always seem to have thought through some of the the potential pitfalls of what they're creating. And we know loads of examples, obviously, of things like facial recognition software and affect recognition software um, being trumpeted and promoted as being able to predict specific things. And then it comes along, uh, you know, the voices of dissent come along afterwards. And it hasn't appeared like those conversations have been had earlier in the production line of process for developing the artificial intelligence. It's hard to judge impact. It would be nice if these conversations were being listened to at a high level, but we keep finding very disappointing outcomes when it comes to those kinds of voices being mistreated or, you know, being pushed out of the corporations in which they're meant to be listened to. Interesting. You should say that. We were talking about facial recognition and we know a lot now about some of the cultural bias Mm -hmm. going on in that. And I wonder if there could be also cultural bias in affect recognition We're now at the point where a lot of AI is emerging into a space where there are cultural interpretations or tendencies that you can put on it. For instance, Mm -hmm. our digital assistants vocalize to us. They have accents. They have Mm -hmm. speech patterns. Things like GPT-3 are evolving conversational abilities based on what they've absorbed from the internet. And I wonder if it's evolving unconsciously into a monoculture that is shaped on Silicon Valley, mores, thinking, values, 
that will dominate the world in the same way that Hollywood has dominated media and export those values and morals around the world by fiat. Yeah, I I definitely think that's a concern. I definitely think we've seen with GPT-3 some of the responses to questions about certain cultures. So if you ask, I think recently, if you ask about Nigeria, what it says about Nigeria and, and so forth, and what are the normative values that are underpinning the kind of neutral setting? I think that's, you know, the, the assumption that there is such a thing as a neutral setting and that actually every application we see that this neutral setting is actually being, as you say, defined by a specific culture, a specific viewpoint, and quite often a specific demographic as well. So we're talking about in terms of gender and race and age and also work culture. I saw something posted recently on how many hours a week people are working on computer programming and a specific work culture around working like 90 hours a week is one specific example to make that position the default neutral and then to try and fit the rest of the world into boxes that match that as greatly as possible it could be hugely detrimental. I'm also quite concerned by recommendation systems that, again, work on underlying values which are going to be neoliberal capitalistic because this is the nature of the platforms, the social media that they work primarily through, how those recommendation systems will shape our experiences and how our understanding of those algorithms lends more trust to them than perhaps is is warranted. So I've done some work around people's responses to fortuitous events on recommendation systems like If you're a content producer and you put up a YouTube video and it does particularly well, it's like the algorithm has decided or I've been blessed by the algorithm in particular ways to get my work highlighted, whereas other people's haven't been. And if we start seeing the invisible forces of algorithmic decision making systems as something almost transcendental, how much of our trust and our responsibility and our own autonomy will we be handing over to them as well? And another bit of work I did a couple of years ago, I was involved in a steering committee on a group of citizen juries. So getting members of the public relatively randomly chosen to think about the role of automated decision making systems and how much we should be aware of them and how much they're invisible. And I think for those participants, the first stage was just showing them how much is being decided behind the scenes in a way that's not visible And then they deciding, well, actually, we should be informed. We should have disclaimers. We should have a bit of information on a mortgage letter that says, actually, you've been excluded from this mortgage because X, Y, Z. And I think if we're going to continue to make automated decision-making systems, we need to think about how we structure society to make that as transparent as possible. So these these are all kind of interlinked concerns that broadly fall under the ethics banner, I suppose. That, of course, is only halfway through the interview. We continue to respect download limits and attention span limits. I really like Beth's explanation of the role she fills and how she found her niche, because it illustrates how AI covers so much territory beyond computer science, and that people in the arts and humanities can be attracted to make enormous contributions to the way we understand and think about AI. We're both on similar missions, also both geeks, of bringing sunlight to the fog that pervades so much public perception of AI and asking those difficult questions. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, in November 2020, a team of engineers from Penn State was working on creating a type of computing 
based on our brain's neural network systems using the brain's analog nature. Thomas Schranghamer said, quote, We are creating artificial neural networks which seek to emulate the energy and area efficiencies of the brain, end quote. And they're doing that with memristors made from graphene. Memristors are memory resistors, and if you've done any electronics, you're familiar with the basic components of resistors, capacitors, and inductors. Resistors relate voltage to current, capacitors relate charge to voltage, and inductors relate magnetic flux to current. Years ago, Leon Chua of UC Berkeley said that there ought to be another fundamental component that relates charge to flux, and called it a memristor, even though it didn't exist yet. Now, this Penn State team has built them out of graphene, which is a highly organized form of carbon. According to Physics World, they are building artificial neural networks that work like the synapses in our brain, which connect the brain's neurons and can be reconfigured. The team's artificial neural networks can be reconfigured by placing a brief electric field to a sheet of graphene. So this is important because it is expanding our cognitive hardware in a different dimension from the classical chip design. And that holds the potential for improving upon the cognitive performance and power consumption. By the time this episode plays, I will have presented the opening keynote at British Telecom's AI Festival, which took place virtually on February 24th and 25th. It would normally have taken place in person at BT's wonderful Martlesham facility, which I was invited to. But of course, it happened online instead this year. And That meant they could invite 10,000 people instead of the usual few hundred. I'll have more news about this huge AI event in a future episode. Next week, we'll conclude the interview with Beth Singler. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.